0: We're creating this moment in our service. We've been reflecting as a team where we really want to make sure that we're interceding for our world, not just passively offering prayers for for the needs of this community, actively offering prayers for the needs of this community and interceding for what's going on in our wider world as well. And Brad does such a good job of that. Um, And partly, this isn't because, it's just a segue, um, partly because Brad also turned 60 this week, friends. It's his birthday last Wednesday. I know by express authority that Brad is really excited that I just did that. Um, he said, I can't wait for more people to know how old I am, how young I am, how young, Michael, young, how young I am. Now, Brad is such a gift to our church and to our community um, and leads so beautifully. So when you see him in the courtyard, say happy birthday to him because he is such a blessing to us. Friends, I'm so excited you're here with us this morning. Um, if you are reading with us through the book of uh, the Bible, through the Bible, um, I want you to give me a quick you or whatever you would feel comfortable doing if you're currently in the book of Leviticus. I'll try that again. Uh, Give me a clap or a you or some kind of expression if you're in the book of Leviticus. Cool. Now, I just want to highlight, that was more than 50 people. Oh, over there. Thank you. Oh, no, fantastic. I was like, you guys are really waving at me. Now, if you're, in, if you're a teenager, you're thinking, Mom and Dad promised me I didn't have to listen to this guy this morning, and we're still here. It's because you guys have weeks until youth camp. Our youth camp registrations are closing, so if you guys have not registered your young person or the person who lives in the house next to you, do it anyway. Resident for Youth Camp is going to be a powerful time as they learn about who they are called to become. And if you're a teenager, would you stand up and head on out today? We'll celebrate them as they head out. Fantastic, so sorry for that. Let me go back to where we were in the book of Leviticus, which everyone is really excited about. If you're reading with us through the Bible this year, we are currently in the book of Leviticus. Uh, This morning we read Leviticus chapter 13. And if you are anything like the majority of people who have spoken to me about their journey through the book of Leviticus... The joyful tribulation and suffering that James talks about in James chapter 1. That's what you're feeling right now as you journey through the book of Leviticus. Anyone else there struggling in this book? Yes, it's a difficult book. And if you haven't read the book of Leviticus and you're like, "Ah, oh, I'll go give it a go. Awesome. Good luck to you. That's a special calling. It's a difficult book to make our way through. But it's often because we don't understand its symbolic, beautiful importance. The book of Leviticus was written to and about a people stuck in a desert after being released from slavery who were broken by sin. And in the book of Leviticus, what we see is the meticulous heart of God to provide ceremonial and relational ways back into community with Him. The whole book of Leviticus is about God providing a way home for His people who are lost. And when you read the book of Leviticus through that lens, as hard as it may be to discover the very different ways that they sacrificed animals thousands of years ago, or what it meant for a man to lose the hairs on his head, as we read this morning, the Bible told us it means he is bald, which was such a revelation to me. It was so good. We actually are reading a bigger story here. Let me encourage you, just because something is difficult doesn't make it not important. And well done. We already have more than 50 people. I think we've got a couple hundred people joining us as we read the Bible together. And I hope you're joining us online. You are in that journey as well. And this morning, we pick up our last week in the book of Genesis. We are studying the book of Genesis from chapter 1 to 11 for our Lent series next year we may come back and look at the story of Abraham, which is where the book goes next. And I just want to say it's been so enjoyable to journey with you over the last couple of weeks. I hope you've enjoyed the journey as well. Um, And as God leads us faithfully into Genesis chapter 11, I have to go from the Tower of Babel today all the way through to make sense of how that relates to Palm Sunday, which is where we are in the calendar as of this morning. So in that note, me making that shift is a Pretty big shift to make in the next 10 minutes. And so what we're going to do is we're going to need prayer. Some of you are like, you're not going to preach for 10 minutes. We can pray and we can hope. Let me pray. (laughs) Gracious God, whether we are in St. George, in Canberra, or around the world today, whether we are here in the room, Lord, we believe that you are also present with us, that you are speaking, that you are moving. Lord, we thank you for that. Posture our hearts today posture our hearts in a place where we will hear what you want to say. Where we will be sensitive to your leading. Lord, may I not get in the way of what you want to do right now. I thank you that your word never returns void. And so, Father, less of me, more of you we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm a very competitive person. Is anyone else out there a bit Competitive. Does anyone else out there need to be told that they're competitive this morning? I'm a competitive person. I love competition. I love winning. Competitive people don't love competition. Competitive people love winning. There's a difference. And and, and so because of that, some of you are like, yeah, that's me. I'm exceptionally competitive, and I'm also exceptionally terrible at everything I try my hand at which is a really frustrating place for me to exist because I want to be the best at everything and you know, I struggle. You know, you might, many people would look at me and think, "Wow, well, you'd be good at sports, Michael. You must be really good at basketball. Friends, that's sizist and you shouldn't be judging me by my height. I'm terrible at basketball. When I play basketball in school in the first two minutes of playing the game, they'd be like, Michael, do you want a referee Would that be a better place for you? True story. Because I'm not very good at many things. So When I find something that I'm good at, what I do is I I become so passionate about it. And friends, I've discovered I'm actually very good at paintball. I don't know if you know what paintball is. Paintball is like laser skirmish, but a bit more painful. I'm also going to laser skirmish, but like paintball is like my dream. And so if I'm preaching today and you see a red mark on my arm, like right here, it's not a rash. It's not infectious. I played paintball yesterday and I had a great time. I went out um, and we played with a, for a box party of a mate who's getting married and we went and we played paintball and I was thinking about it all week long, devising strategies, thinking through tactics. There are two kinds of people who play paintball. There's one person who plays paintball because like, oh, it'd be fun to like shoot paint at each other and, and we'll, you know, run around the field together. Then there's another person who has believed their actual calling in life was to be an SAS commander and everything is strategy and they deploy the field. We get there yesterday, I have 25 people on my team, most of whom I do not know, but I was dedicated to it. So I started organizing them. I'm like, you are platoon number one, you're number two, we're number three, you guys are gonna go up the right side, left side and center. And we were like on mission. We're reversing this team of like 15 year olds and we were all 30 year old men and it didn't matter. I was like, get him! And everyone was like, and like this 15 year old, ah! Like, like, she's not here now, son. And, like, you know, calling out this stuff. It got a little bit aggressive. Anyway, long story short, we won and uh, it was awesome. We had so much fun. This is probably the tamest welt I have. The other welts would not be appropriate for me to show you, but they are many yeah, as we forged our way forward. And we went to dinner after paintball last night and we we're all sitting around slapping each other, high fiving. Like, we beat the 15 year olds. It was awesome. And then uh, someone goes, What do you do for a job, Michael? And I was like, I'm a pastor. And he's like, what? And I realized I played the day back through my head. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, when that kid was calling for mercy. And I'm like, no mercy. <laughs> I can see how this would be problematic for you. Um, and then I said, hey, listen, the gospel is that we all fall short of the glory of God. Come to church tomorrow. I'll pray for you. You can pray for me. It's great. And I'm kidding. That, didn't, that last part didn't actually happen. But it was a really funny moment because you see, friends, I have this ambition in me when I play laser skirmish or paintball to win. In fact, I'm probably going to, I think we should do a new life paintball skirmish session just for fun. Yeah, fair. I've got like three of us. That'll be good. I'll beat you all. There's this, there's this ambition in me to win. To achieve. And as I was driving home last night, I was just being prayerfully reflective. I'm like, God, why, is, why do I have this part of me that wants to strive to achieve? Like, is this right? And when is it wrong? And maybe should have, like, you should know, have loved people a bit better today. And God and I are still chatting that through. The, the jury's out. But what I started to recognize is I started to phrase this idea of ambition as being a bad thing. Or maybe I shouldn't be as ambitious. Maybe I shouldn't have such hard drive. And we can do this sometimes. When we come up against ambition, we think that ambition is the problem. When actually, I want to make the claim today that I believe God has created all of us to be people of ambition, to be people who are ambitious, who dream big and hope for great things. Salvador Dali, a great famous painter, says this, intelligence without ambition is like a bird without wings. You don't see the fullness of what someone could achieve if they don't apply intelligence and ambition. I love this. Because I don't think the problem with how I play paintball or how many of us live our life is ambition. It's what we're ambitious for. What are you ambitious for today? A guy named James K.A. Smith says it like this. We can demonize ambition and it's wrong because you see the opposite of ambition Is not humility. Humble people are not any less ambitious. It is sloth, passivity, timidity, and complacency. People who aren't ambitious aren't humble. We're often lazy. We're not dreaming and hoping that God can and will do great things with our lives. So what does it mean for us to have a holy ambition in comparison to a worldly ambition? Over the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through the book of Genesis, and we are, we're about to finish. We started a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 1, where we recognize Genesis answers great worldview questions. The first question being, where did it all come from? God bring order from chaos. Genesis chapter 2, we realized that God created humanity on purpose for a purpose, that we are to carry His name into the world. These questions of why are we here, and why does humanity matter? Then the third week, we talked about, well, where did it all go wrong? And in Genesis chapter 3 to 5, myself and Pastor Randall, we we talked through, well, what does sin do to our world? It breaks humanity. And then a week, the next week, I spoke last time about Noah and the flood. How does God solve the problem? And that God no longer will solve a problem by wiping out humanity in a flood, but through the covenant of His Son, Jesus Christ. So this week, I want to delve into, well, what does it mean for the problem to get worse? What does it look like for us to have ambition That isn't godly. And to do that, we're going to travel to a tower called Babel. If you want to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 11, we're going to dive right in today. And in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, we read this. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. The narrator of Genesis wants to paint a picture for us of unity in humanity. That after Noah and the flood, the whole world were kind of sons and grandsons, daughters and granddaughters of Noah and his three sons. And it kind of spread out from there. And there was a commonality of language. If you read in Genesis chapter 10, however, you'll read this table of nations where it describes all the ancient cultures and that every single one of them had a different language. And so we read in Genesis chapter 11 that all people had one language. But if we go to the chapter before, it says, well, everyone had different languages. Now, is the Bible confused? Is it contradicting itself? Not at all. This is what I would call the George Lucas effect. It's an effect I completely made up in preparation for this sermon. The George Lucas effect is when you write three great movies called Star Wars Episode 4, 5, and 6, and then you feel the need, after having written them, to go back and make three terrible movies called Star Wars 1, 2, and 3, to explain 4, 5, and 6, which didn't need explaining. Any other Star Wars fans out there know exactly where I'm at. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. You should go rent Star Wars. No one rents these days. You should go download Star Wars and uh, enjoy a world of lightsabers in and Ewoks. And what is happening in Genesis chapter 11 is that the narrator of Genesis explains how all humanity comes from one culture and one place and one time. And then in Genesis chapter 11... They go backwards and say, but let me explain how they now all speak different languages. It inserts another story at the end of, but almost into Genesis chapter 10 as well. And so into this, we discover that humanity at one time in the biblical narrative all spoke one language. Now, we might ask the question, well, did this actually happen? Let's make sure that as we're reading the word, we continue to apply the same principles. The question of Genesis is not, is this historically true? But what is the point of the narrative? The claim we're making today is not, you have to believe this happened or else, can you believe it happened? Yes, 100%. Is it historical proof? Different Christian linguists would say different things about this. The point of the story is, what is God trying to teach us in Genesis chapter 11? That at one point, humanity was unified in language and in common speech. And what did they do with this unity? Genesis chapter 11, verse 3 to 4, the story continues. It says that after they had gone, I'll go back, I'll read the, I'll read the full, that now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward together, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. What did they do when they settled in this plain? They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Now, why, why, why would the narrator include this dialogue? Because this is the first time since Noah and the Flood we see man use technology to create something. It's technological advancement. They've moved away from brick, from just stone, and they've moved to brick, which is the combining of natural elements to create an efficient building mechanism. The whole story of Genesis chapter 11 has so much packed into it. But one of the commentaries it provides us is the dangers of technology when married With the wayward ambition of man. The dangers of technology were married with the wayward ambition of man. This is not a commentary of God saying technology is evil. No, but when technology is placed into the hands of those who are pursuing evil, it can be used to break everything. And so they say, let us make brick. Why do they do this? Because in this moment, we read on in Genesis chapter 4, then they said with these bricks that they have made, come let us build, everyone say ourselves. You're going to say it again in a second. Be prepared. Come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for? Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. Here we see. A dialogue of four points that they say to each other. Come, let us build a city for ourselves. Already, we see the human intention and direction of their hearts start to echo what we saw in Genesis chapter 3. Are they outward looking? Are they thinking of everyone else and God and the creation He has called them to protect? Let us build a city. For ourselves, This is the first moment when we see the spawning of human kingdoms and empires. When mankind, humankind starts to say, let's build something for us. What are they going to build? A city, but not just a city. Let's also build a tower. And where will the tower go? It will go to the heavens. Why is this so important? Because in the ancient Near East, what they would often talk about when something went to the heavens, it was something built to worship the gods that or God existed in the heavens. What they're building is a tower to worship. And what do they want to worship? Where is their attention and their worship of their lives surrendered towards that we may make a name for ourselves? Humanity. After having seen God, not only flood the earth, that he might restart creation, make a new covenant with Noah, say, trust in me, turns around and says, here's a better plan. Let's make something for ourselves. Let's build a tower of worship. Not to God. Let's reach God's level and worship ourselves. Why? So that we can make a name greater for us. Let's build technology so that humanity can indulge in its own greatness. Friends, this doesn't sound like a story from thousands of years ago, does it? This sounds like something we read about every day, where we marvel at humanity, and so we should. We should celebrate human technological advancement. Because of that, I'm talking to someone live in St. George right now. But when we use it to worship the grandeur of man of humanity, we have lost the point. We should celebrate it, but not use it to worship ourselves. Why is this so critical? Why is it so important? Because of the why behind the what that they were doing. Why did they want to build a nation for themselves? Why were they trying to build a tower for themselves? Because they were afraid. See, I want to argue this morning that all godless worldly ambition begins with fear. Why did they do this? Lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. Their motivation was they didn't want to be scattered. Why were they so afraid of being scattered? Because in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, after Noah and his sons and family comes off the ark, what does God say to Noah? He repeats what he said to Adam. In 9, verse 7, he goes, As for you, you family of Noah, be fruitful and increase in number. Where are they meant to go? Multiply on across the earth. And increase upon it. God has called his unified family, carrying the redemptive message of God, to scatter across the earth and take care of it. And in this moment, you see humanity go, What if God's intentions can't be trusted? What if scattering is dangerous? What if, what if? Let us make a name for ourselves. Why? So that we don't have to do that which God has called us to, and it is scary. Godless ambition always begins with a fear and lack of trust in God. What do I mean? Here in this narrative, what we actually see is humanity choose not to trust God because they're afraid of God's will. And at some stage, friends, we have to start actually asking ourselves the question, do we believe that God's ultimate eternal intention is for the flourishing of his creation, more so than yours. They are ambitious to build a name for themselves because otherwise they're worried they won't know who they are. And they refuse to trust God because they refuse that he has their best intentions at heart. Now we look at this and we go, guys, like, come on, how many times do you have to get this wrong in Genesis? And maybe they would look back at us and go, how many times do you have to get it wrong as well? How many of our ambitions are defined by fear? We are afraid of insignificance. We are afraid that we will be judged by how little we have achieved with our lives. So, what do we do? We have an ambition for success that promotion, that job. Not because it comes from a place of security, but a place of fear that if I don't, then who am I? Some of us in this room right now, we are afraid of being alone. We're afraid of what it means for us to not have a romantic partner. And so an ambition wells up in us out of a fear that what it means to be alone is that we are not worthy, we are not beautiful, we are not loved, we don't have value. So we will do whatever it takes to get someone in our lives that we might feel loved and valuable. It comes from fear. These are not wrong aims. These are not bad things, but they become destructive things when they Come from a motivation of fear. We are afraid of our children growing up to be like us or growing up. And we'll repeat the sins of our mothers and fathers. Some of us are afraid that we may never have a family at all. And so in so doing, we are ambitious either for a partner to start a family or with our partner to start a family or ambitious to place a weight of expectation upon our children that they will not become a disappointment like we were disappointed And the fear crushes them under the ambition, not born from security, but born out of wanting something for ourselves. We are afraid that our bank account reflects our success. And so we are ambitious for more. And we squeeze all the money we can out of life without questioning where does this ambition come from. See, godly ambition comes from security, comes from acceptance. But worldly ambition is born out of a fear and insecurity. It comes out of a self-serving destructive force in our hearts that we know better than God does what we have or need for our lives. What are you ambitious for today? And where did that ambition come from? James K. Smith says it like this, resting in the love of God doesn't squelch ambition it fuels it with a different fire. I don't have to strive to get God to love me. Rather, because God loves me unconditionally, I'm free to take risks and launch out into the deep. I'm released to aspire to use my gifts in gratitude, caught up in God's mission for the sake of the world. When you've been found, you're free to fail. Someone needs to hear that today. When you're found by God, it's okay if you don't get stuff right. Because God's opinion, adoption, and inclusion of you in his family is not based on you fulfilling your potential. It's based on the fact that you can't on your own. See, as Christians, we don't operate for security. We operate from it. And let me use an example of dating. This would actually change the dating game for everybody. Now, if I was to go on a date, I say if because I'm married and happily married, and I don't anticipate this happening for the rest of my life. But if I was to go on a date and I was secure about who I was, I would not place the weight of my ambitious hopes upon this other person to be everything I needed them to be because they might not be. And I wouldn't base my value and worth on this success coming. And these apps like Tinder and all these other dating apps, they're not necessarily evil and of themselves, but what they do is they feed ambition for us to find value and worth in another person. And we'll do whatever it takes to get what we think we need. But when you are operating from security and you start to find a romantic partner, you're not finding someone to give you value or worth, but someone to complement the mission and calling and ambition that God has for your life. Man, it's a different place of security. And it's something God calls us each to, not just in our dating life, but in our marriages, in our families. If our children stumble and fall, it's not a reflection of you because you operate from security. It's a moment for us to hey, God, help me to know what it looks like for me to honor you as a father and a mother. If we don't have children, then we go, God, it does it look like for me to honor you in this moment. What are the ambitions you're calling me to have, not out of fear, but out of security? Friends, this is a beautiful, beautiful truth that God calls us into today. Because what ends up happening is when we have human unity with a godless vision, it happens something like this. What Walter Brueggemann says, a, vision, a human unity without the vision of God's will is likely to be ordered in oppressive conformity. Let me explain what this means. We see this the most in our day with social injustice. Does God care about racial inequality? Yeah. Racism grieves the heart of God and it is not godly in any way, shape or form. Does God care about gender oppression and abuse? Yes it breaks his heart. But when the world begins to define for us what it means to be unified in our response to these serious, serious sins, we become unified under a will that is not godly and ends up oppressing another faction of society anyway. We just change power structures But when we come before God and say, God, how are you calling us to answer gender inequality? How are you calling us to answer racism? How are you calling us to answer social injustices in our world? We're unifying under the only thing that can bring flourishing. And it's not what the media tells us. It's what the word of God tells us is God's will for his humanity. Our ambition for our world must be defined by the will of God. Because you see, what ends up happening next helps us understand this a little bit more. How does God react to the Worldly ambition of these humans, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. This is actually meant to be a piece of comedy in this story, and I sense no one laughing, so let me explain. When you were Jewish, you were reading this story, this, this narrative is actually about the beginning of the empire of Babylon, the, the empire that would be founded upon imperialism, upon conquering, upon worldly ambitions to dominate the world. The Tower of Babel is the beginning of the Empire of Babylon. And in this moment, these these forefathers to the Babylonian Empire decide, we will build a tower that will make our name great, and it will be seen that we worship the gods that we have created about ourselves. And then in this narrative, you have this tower that's immense, and all humans are like, it's so high. And how do you see God interacting with the tower? God, who was meant to be where the tower has reached, steps down to see it. It's a beautiful joke. You thought that your ambitions could equal my power. I will, I'll step down and see this thing that could not even be big enough for my footstool. Let's see what your ambitions have equaled. This is beautiful, beautiful, and it's actually the center of the story. For those of you who are with us in Genesis chapter one, if you weren't there, please go back and listen to it. This is what we know in Genesis one as a chiasm. The whole story of Genesis chapter 11 actually moves towards a middle point in Genesis chapter 11 verse 5 of then God stepped down. It's the point of the whole story that in response to worldly ambition, God doesn't say, go, how amazing is humanity? He steps down and goes, oh, they've got it wrong again. I flooded the earth last time. They still think that they could build something that would challenge my power. They got it wrong again. And in this moment, how does God respond? He does something so interesting. He, he God, in, in the divine, divine relationship of the Trinity, says this, the Lord said in verse 6, if as one people speak in the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Is God coming against big dreams and big ambitions of us thinking we could achieve impossible things? No, not at all. What he's saying is, when man takes their eye off me and begins to do whatever they want, historically, and we've seen this, friends, throughout Genesis, they seem to get it wrong and destroy creation. So I have to put an end to this and slow this down. Otherwise, we're going to end up back in Genesis chapter six with Noah in the flood again. This can't happen. I have to bring a sense of disunity because they are unified in their destruction, not in their obedience. So what does God do? He says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other so they will not understand each other. The motivation of God is to remove understanding. In fact, in the Hebrew, what he's hoping to do is it says in the Hebrew so that they will not be able to hear each other. Why is this important? Because instead of humanity listening to God, they've started to listen to each other to define their ambitions. And, and I'll highlight this because is this not what we do? How do you know what to achieve with your life? How do you know the longings of your heart? For so many of us, friends, is it not because of our obsession with what we see in the media? Who told you that you needed X number of houses to be successful? Was it here? Who told you that a family or a partner or a job or a certain amount of money or a lifestyle or a holiday in that place meant that you had value? Was it in the Word of God? So so often, our ambitions aren't defined by God. They're defined by the voices we listen to in our world. And in this moment, God brings confusion because he wants to train the people. The only way forward will not be by you hearing each other. I need you to learn to listen to me first. Because that's how we're going to see a world and creation flourish. And friends, that's what we're doing this year. That's why we're reading the Bible. We're tuning our voice, our ears to hear the voice of God first. Before we pick up our phone, we pick up our word, we ask God, be the key speaker of our heart because God still calls us to be ambitious people. John Tyson, one of my favorite pastors, someone who's changed my life and he's teaching and he's preaching, he says these Christians should be the most ambitious people. Why? Because we have the most ambitious vision that his kingdom come, his will will be done, that suffering will not be the last word, that God can remove any sin or any darkness or any evil from people's heart, and we believe that we are called to be part of that. God's vision is better than ours. We should be aiming with ambition for a future that can only be achieved by aligning ourselves with his will. And this changes everything. When we rock up and we go to work tomorrow and someone goes, why haven't you gone for that promotion yet? You have security because you're listening to the voice of God. Going, hey, this is what I'm sensing. God saying for my life. I'm not here for money, I'm here to fulfill a call and this is where I'm meant to be right now. When you go for a promotion someone goes to you, oh, you're just wanting to climb the ladder. I'm not worried about what you think about me. I have security because this is what I'm meant to be doing. This is where I sense God leading me, I'm listening to his voice. As a parent, when you're prioritizing your children over your career, you're doing that not because the world's told you it's important, but because you're listening to the voice of God and you're following him every single, we listen to God's voice and it changes our ambition. And we should be shameless about it. Because this is what is close to the heart of God. God does not want us to live as a people responding to the world around us in fear. Ambitions and what we're doing, coming from a motivation of, I am afraid. In 1 John 4 verse 18, it says this, There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Friends, some of us are afraid and we are trying to achieve things God hasn't asked of us because we are afraid because we do not know how much we are loved in Him. See, every single one of us this morning is aiming for something. James K. Smith says this, The question isn't whether we aim our lives. Our existence is like an arrow on a taut string. It will be sent somewhere. It's not a matter of quelling ambition or settling as if that was somehow more virtuous or even possible. The alternative to disordered ambition that ultimately disappoints is not some holy lethargy. It's not some kind of, I'm not really ambitious. I'm just waiting on God. It's not this pious passivity of the world is passing away and I'm just, I'm waiting for Jesus to come home. No, it's this recalibrated ambition that aspires for a different end and does so for different reasons. This is who we are called to be. This is what God has called us to do. And this is the problem of the Tower of Babel. It's the problem that that is actually, if I'm honest friends, still resting in all of our hearts today. So God scatters them across the earth. Isn't it interesting how God's will continues to be realized despite the evil ambitions of man? God scatters them, but instead of being unified, they're now disunified Every tribe, every nation, every tongue then starts to prioritize building their own kingdoms, their own worlds, their own empires. And the only way back, the only way back is when we actually see something start to change. An ambitious community starts to rise up in every nation and every tongue in the early centuries of the the, the AD era. A Christian community that starts to be known by every culture and every tongue starts to believe there is something greater than earthly power and they are unified by a vision for something greater than their own glory. So when we, when we look at this stuff, one of the things I sense God calling us to question is, where have your ambitions come from? What is the trajectory of your life? Are your ambitions holy or worldly? What does it mean for us to have holy ambitions? It means for us to look at the one who had holy ambition. On this day, Palm Sunday, we celebrate and remember the suffering servant who rode on a donkey. That coming into Jerusalem, Jesus did not ride on a war horse or a stallion. He rode on a donkey. He was not welcomed by armies and rulers and officials. He was welcomed by peasants who laid down palm fronds and said, Hosanna, son of David. And in this moment, we see an image of what holy ambition looks like. Because know this, friends, Jesus was ambitious. He was filled with ambition. But what we find out is what that ambition called him to do. It called him to humble himself, stepping down off the throne, recognizing, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, that equality with God was not a thing for him to grasp. to let go of. Why? Because his ambition wasn't for an earthly throne. His ambition was for a people to come home. So we gave it all away for a selfless ambition that you would know you were loved, that you would know you were holy. That's why the ambition of this church is that we would see more people more like Jesus, because he's the only person the world needs more of doesn't need more michael doesn't need more whatever name you, you go by in that they need more of jesus the selfless suffering king who paints a different picture who doesn't say come let me build a kingdom just for myself that i might glory in the east he says, come let me build a kingdom that actually sees the world flourish, where every son and every daughter no matter how bad they are can find a home that we would be unified again in jesus name this is the ambition which will mark us as a church And going ahead into the future, we've got to realize, friends, that sometimes we can disguise worldly ambitions as godly ambitions just because we say in the name of Jesus. And I recognize that one of the ambitions we have as a church is to church plant. And At the moment, the elders and I are praying about what does it mean for us to continue church planting? Because if we're not careful, we can be more about church planting to build the name of new life than build the name of Jesus. Now, we will church plant again, but we will only church plant as fruit of obedience, not as pressure from a world that needs things to be bigger. And that's, that's who we are. And I ask you, would you do the same? Would you live a life of holy ambition? Because God wants to redeem the narrative that he started at the Tower of Babel. How do we know that? Because the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, went to the cross to die a death. We could not die to live after living a life that you and I could not live. And then what did he do? He walked with his disciples and he says this beautiful thing. He tells them that God still wants to scatter people. Acts 1 verse 8, before he ascends to heaven, what does Jesus say? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're going to be my witnesses. In just Jerusalem? No, no, no. We're blasting out of cities in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. God's still about scattering his unified people across the earth. God is still about sending people out that the world might flourish because we know Him and who we are. In fact, so much so, He says, let me tell you how I'm going to do this. I will send my Holy Spirit to you. And here's what's cool, friends. In Acts chapter 2, what happens? We see Genesis 11 verse 5 all over again. God comes down. God comes down in the form of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, not as someone to bring confusion, but to bring unity. Once again, God comes down not to mock at the ambitions of man, but to actually say the ambition of forwarding my kingdom is right. Let's see the world change. And He empowers them by inhabiting them with His Holy Spirit. If you are a, you are a Christian, someone who's confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. And let's just see what happens next in this story. This is great. In the moment when God brings confusion in the, in the Old Testament, when He comes down again, instead He brings a new gift. And in this gift, if you know the story, of Acts chapter 2, what happens? The disciples, these men and women waiting in the upper room, they flood the streets, and what do they start doing? We don't, I mean, this is weird, like we don't like talking about it that much, but it's so crucial. They speak in tongues. And they're out there speaking in tongues, and, and we're like, Oh, when we talk about it in church, we can get a bit freaked out by this, but this is a holy gift of God. Why? Because He wants to undo the original confusion in response to our sin. So he brings down the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit inhabits these people. They go out in the streets. They start speaking in tongues. And then what does everyone say about what they hear? Aren't all these guys speaking Galileans? They don't know all these languages. What do they say? Then how is it that each of us hears them or a better translation understands? How is that in our own native language? It doesn't actually say, how are they speaking in our native language? It says, how are we hearing them? This is why the gift of interpretation has to be married with the gift of tongues. So important. Because God doesn't come down to confuse us or weird us out. He comes down to unify His people. That once again, the gift and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit always marks that we are a unified, scattered people sent into the world by the power of Jesus Christ to expand His kingdom and declare His glory. That when you go into work tomorrow... What I'm not saying is you walk into work and start speaking in tongues in the middle of the morning tea room. Don't do that. Don't say my pastor told me to do that either. I didn't. What am I saying is that when you step in there, God has given you gifts that we celebrate in the body of Christ, that we might be built up as the body of Christ. that when we're scattered tomorrow, we go firm in the knowledge that we have a deposit from heaven that I am safe in my security. I am safe in who I am. That no matter what happens to me tomorrow, I'm the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Darkness, you better watch out. That's what we do. The reason why we gather together on Sundays isn't just to entertain, because I don't think many of you are entertained. We gather together that you might be encouraged that someone might celebrate their gift of the Holy Spirit in your life, that you'd be built up and that you might be sent back out, that we gather and we scatter, we gather. Don't forsake the gathering of the saints because it's the only way we remember our security, and our identity, that we might be sent into a world that we'll seek to challenge it at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. But we stand firm and go, the promotion's not what I'm here for. The child, the family, that's not what I'm here. I'm here to glorify Jesus and may He do that in my life. I have a holy ambition, a holy ambition, and this world will never be the same because of it. Friends, what is your ambition? I have a firm belief here at New Life. We are going to see God demonstrate to us the practice and the celebration of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I believe He wants us to know that right around the world, millions and millions of Christians celebrate the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. We are a unified but scattered body. And one day, every tribe, every nation, every tongue will not be confused, but will bow their knee in worship of our King. He will unify what sin has scattered. And we get to be a part of that story. Where are you heading? What is your ambition? May it be holy in the name of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me as we pray? So Lord Jesus, as we move into Holy Week, we thank you the story doesn't finish on Friday. We prepare our hearts to mourn but to celebrate, to remember but rejoice. God, I pray we may not be by, marked by passivity or laziness, but a holy ambition that we would have doctors, lawyers, mothers, fathers, counselors, actors, tradesmen and women, those who are retired and those who are just starting their profession, those who are studying Activated by the power of your Holy Spirit to live out a holy ambition that we would not build our empire, our kingdom, a tower unto ourselves, but we would make your name great in a world that is so desperate to hear of it. Move in power in Jesus' name. Redeem us from our sin. We repent of moments when we've made it about us. We repent of moments when we've made it about our empire, our, our kingdoms. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Help us to know that you have a better future for us, a better ambition, and a better kingdom to be a part of. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, we're gonna sing a song now called Fullness. As we sing this song, I wonder if you would just sit in this moment as we sing a song that says, tongues of fire prophesying of the Son, one desire, one desire that His kingdom would come, that His Spirit would come. We would see a unifying presence happen here in this church. Let's sing and worship backing King together.